0: The existence of God, the most important consideration of all time. Is there evidence that God exists, or is it just something we accept on blind faith? More importantly, has God actually revealed Himself to us? Today, one of the top living Christian philosophers discusses this issue, and you don't want to miss a minute of it. This is Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. Dr. Zukerin is a popular speaker, scholar and author on today's most important spiritual questions. And today he interviews Dr. William Lane Craig on some of the latest scientific and philosophical insights giving fascinating evidence for God. And while you're here, we wanna invite you to our website, evidenceandanswers.org. EvidenceAndAnswers.org is loaded with terrific resources on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. And you'll want to download today's show and send it to someone you know who is a skeptic or who is seeking God in a deeper way. Just go to EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Pat, lots to talk about today with William Lane Craig. Let's go for it.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Yes, with me today we have a very special guest, Dr. William Lane Craig. He has two PhDs in theology and philosophy, He's one of the finest apologists of our day. He has debated and defended the Christian faith throughout the world. He's an author of numerous books. We could recommend any of those books, any books written by him, we recommend that you read. And so, Dr. Craig, welcome to the show. Hi, Pat. Good to be with you. Dr. Craig, we're talking about the evidence for the existence of God, a topic that you've debated throughout the world. And one of your favorite arguments is the cosmological argument or the argument from first cause. So explain to us, basically, what is the argument from first cause or the cosmological argument?
2: Well, there are different versions of this argument. It's actually a family of arguments, but the version that I like best is one that was developed by medieval Christian, Jewish, and Islamic philosophers called the Kalam cosmological argument. And this is a very simple three step argument. It goes like this Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Premise two, the universe began to exist. And from that three follows, therefore, the universe has a cause. And then what you'll do is unpack by an analysis what it means to be a cause of the universe, and you'll find that several significant theological conclusions fall out of that.
1: Well, one of the things that you've studied is the question, how do we know that the universe has a beginning?
2: In my published work, I present four arguments on behalf of premise two, that the universe began to exist. Two of these arguments are philosophical and basically are derived from this Medieval tradition that I mentioned before. I think these arguments can be reformulated and redefended in light of modern philosophy and mathematics. And then I present two contemporary scientific confirmations of the premise that the universe began to exist. So we have both, I think, philosophical arguments and scientific evidence for premise two.
1: Well, let's get into a little bit of that. Uh, present to us some of the philosophical arguments that the universe must have a beginning.
2: All right. Uh, Both of these philosophical arguments intend to show that you cannot have an infinite past, or you cannot have a series of past events that is beginningless. The series of past events had to have a beginning. And the first philosophical argument for that conclusion is based on the impossibility of the existence of an actually infinite number of things. If the past were beginningless, if the series of past events just went back and back and back and never had a beginning, then there have existed prior to today an actually infinite number of past events. But mathematicians recognize that the idea of an actually infinite number of things leads to all sorts of absurdities and actually in the end logical contradictions And therefore, if there cannot exist an actually infinite number of things, there cannot be an actually infinite number of past events. The number of past events must be finite, and therefore the universe had a beginning.
1: Yes, uh, illustrate that for us. I know you give a good illustration in several of your books.
2: Right. It's not hard to illustrate the absurdities that would result if the past were actually infinite or an actually infinite number of things could exist. One of my favorites is the brainchild of the great German mathematician David Hilbert, who is perhaps the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, uh, and it's called Hilbert's Hotel. Now, to get a warm-up for this, first imagine an ordinary hotel with a finite number of rooms, and imagine that all of the rooms in the hotel are occupied. There's a person in every single room in the hotel. Uh, there's no vacancy, in other words. So if a new guest shows up at the desk asking for a room, the manager has to apologize and say, sorry, all the rooms are full, there's no vacancy, and the new guest has to be turned away. Now, that's the way it goes with an ordinary hotel that we're familiar with. But Hilbert said, let's imagine that you could have a hotel that has an actually infinite number of rooms. And let's suppose once more that all of the rooms are occupied. There is a real flesh and blood person living in every single room in the hotel. All of the infinite rooms are occupied. There is no vacancy whatsoever throughout this infinite hotel. Now let's suppose somebody shows up at the front desk asking for a room. No problem, says the proprietor. And he moves the person who is staying in room one into room two. He moves the person who was in room two into room three. He moves the person who was in room three into room four, putting each person into the room next to him. As a result of these movements, room number one now becomes vacant, and the new guest gratefully checks in. But remember, before they arrived, all the rooms were full. So you could have a hotel that has no vacancy, and yet can accommodate new guests endlessly. You could keep doing this over and over again. In fact, you could actually accommodate an infinite number of new guests. Suppose an infinite number of people show up at the front desk asking for a room in the hotel. No problem, no problem, says the manager. And he shifts the person who was in room one into room two the person who was in room two into room four, the person who was in room three into room six. In other words, he just doubles the room number of every person. Now, since any number multiplied by two is an even number, all of the guests wind up in the even numbered rooms and all of the odd numbered rooms suddenly become vacant. And the infinity of new guests is easily accommodated. And yet again, Remember, before they arrived, all the rooms were occupied. There was no vacancy. Now, this kind of a hotel, to my mind, I think, is simply absurd. Uh, If you could have a hotel like this, it would have to have a sign out front saying, No Vacancy! Guests Welcome! So, this would just be one illustration of the sort of absurdities that would result if you could have an actually infinite number of things in reality.
0: So because all these things are so absurd, Dr. Craig, that shows that an actual infinite number of things just doesn't exist.
2: Right. That whatever you pick, stars, planets, atoms, people, there are only a finite number of those things in reality. The idea of infinity is just that. It's an idea, but it's not something that actually exists in the real world.
0: Dr. Craig what are your colleagues uh, Dr. Guybet has a, an illustration that envisions an auditorium and the master of ceremonies asking everyone to stand up starting at the back one at a time until you get to the to the person on the very last row of the front row and after a few minutes and eventually the last person would stand and completed the, the chain but if you had an infinite number of seats and <laughs> prior to you standing up an infinite number of people had to stand up you would never stand it would never get to you
2: yeah that's actually the second philosophical argument kevin that i give against the infinity of the past the first one is based on the impossibility of an actually infinite number of things the second one is based on the impossibility of completing an actual infinite series one member at a time. And you just illustrated that beautifully through Doug Guyvitz's illustration that you cannot get through an infinite series one member at a time. And yet, this is how the past was formed. One event following after another event. So if the past were infinite, if there were an infinite number of prior events before today, well, today would never arrive, which is absurd, because obviously here we are. So this shows that there have been only a finite number of past events, and there must have been a beginning and a first event.
1: Those are some great philosophical arguments. What are some contemporary scientific evidences that the universe does indeed have a beginning?
2: Well, in addition to these philosophical arguments, one of the scientific confirmations of the beginning of the universe comes from the expansion of the universe When Albert Einstein drafted his general theory of relativity and applied it to the cosmos as a whole in 1917, he was shaken by the discovery that his equations predicted a universe which was either exploding or imploding upon itself. And in order to prevent this, he introduced uh, a factor into his equations to stabilize the universe and make it walk the tightrope between implosion and explosion. Well, this was a purely contrived maneuver by Einstein and other scientists like the Russian mathematician Alexander Friedman and the Belgian astronomer Georges Lemaitre took Einstein's equations at face value and they were able to craft theories of an expanding universe, a universe in which Space itself is expanding as time grows on. Now, the radical implication of Friedman and Lemaître's theories was that as you go back in time, space contracts down closer and closer and tighter and tighter. Everything gets denser and denser until finally the whole universe is contracted down to a single point before which it did not exist. It represents the beginning of space and time, matter and energy of all of physical reality itself. And what happened during the late 1920s is that through the observations of astronomers like Edwin Hubble and others, scientists actually discovered evidence that the universe is expanding in the way that Friedman and Lemaitre had predicted simply on the basis of Einstein's gravitational equations, and this theory of the universe came to be called the Big Bang theory of the origin of the universe. So according to the standard Big Bang model, the universe is not eternal in the past. Rather, the universe and everything in it, indeed physical space and time themselves, came into existence at some point in the finite past. And based upon present scientific observations, scientists estimate this to be somewhere around 13.5 billion years ago. Uh, And prior to that, well, there was no prior to that point. I was going to say prior to that point there was just nothing. It would be more accurate to say that that was the beginning of time itself, so that it's meaningless to talk about anything prior to that.
1: Now, some Christians... Have trouble with accepting the Big Bang because they feel that's that shows that matter is eternal. Now, is there a problem if well, we accept Well, I don't
2: the Big think Bang? that's right, Pat. I mean, it, obviously, on the Big Bang theory, matter is not eternal. It's only existed for about 13 and a half billion years. It came into being out of nothing. There was nothing prior to it. So the Big Bang theory confirms the Christian doctrine of creation out of nothing. It's very much in opposition to the old Greek views that thought of matter as eternal, and God was just a sort of architect who structured and ordered eternal matter into certain forms. On the Big Bang Theory, matter is not eternal. It came into being out of nothing. It was created itself, not simply the order in the universe. So if Christians have reservations about the Big Bang Theory, it's not on the basis of the eternality of matter. It would be rather, I think, because some Christians are convinced that the book of Genesis, chapter 1, teaches that the universe was created only ten to 20,000 years ago and not 13 billion years ago, and therefore they have reservations about the Big Bang Theory.
1: Well, you know, perhaps maybe what I was reading was a little outdated on the Big Bang, but uh, I was taught uh, that it began with two atoms that were so dense they did not take up any space and that through this collision, there was this great explosion that started the Big Bang. Is that That's
2: that's a a misnomer, actually, or a misunderstanding, Pat. It is true that Lemaitre, whom I referred to, the Belgian astronomer, he referred to that initial point, that initial... It's called a singularity in physics, an initial boundary point of space and time at which the universe came into being. He did call that the primeval atom. But that's, that's merely a metaphor. That's a picture. It's not literally an atom, and it's not as though it itself existed from all eternity and then blew up. As I say, it was the beginning of time, and space. So we mustn't think of this as being some sort of a super dense atom or pellet that has existed from eternity past and that blew up. That would be a complete misunderstanding of the theory.
0: And, you know, space came into existence as well. Exactly. Time, so it's matter, not as space.
2: though this thing existed anywhere or at any time prior to its origin.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's difficult to say, because you want to say prior, but prior yeah. presupposes time, and but there wasn't any time, but what can you say, Bill, can you say logically prior? I mean, God existed prior to the
2: universe, right? Well, what I would say is that God existed causally prior to the universe. Ah. Causal priority is not the same as temporal priority. To be prior in time means to exist at a moment before something else. But to be causally prior means that one is the cause and the other is the effect. And so God is causally prior to the universe, but he's not temporally prior. He didn't exist at some earlier point and then then caused the universe.
1: Well, Dr. Craig, Dr. Alan Guth one of the leaders of a theory called inflationary cosmology. Could you explain to us briefly what is inflationary cosmology? Sure.
2: What Guth is burdened to deal with is the inexplicable fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe. It seems that the universe was expanding at uh, an extraordinarily special rate of speed and that the geometry of space was extraordinarily flat, uh, that... You you have the universe extraordinarily homogeneous, even though these parts were not initially in causal contact with each other. And so Guth was trying to solve these fine-tuning problems, and he did so by saying that maybe in the very, very early universe, these different parts of the universe were in causal contact with each other, but then the universe blew up at a, a fantastic rate of speed, and near the speed of light, and it pushed the universe so far out, so large, so that it appears very flat that any inhomogeneities were pushed out beyond what we could discern with our best instruments, and, and that this gives the appearance of fine-tuning, but in fact it's explained away by this early inflationary era. And this early period of super-rapid or inflationary expansion is an adjustment to the standard Big Bang model that doesn't do anything to explain away its origin. Prior to inflation, it would still continue to go back to the initial singularity and the origin of the universe. So You can't extend this inflationary period back in time infinitely or indefinitely. You still have to come to a beginning. And Guth himself recognizes this.
0: Dr. Craig, What often comes up whenever you discuss the Kalam cosmological argument, the Big Bang, and that an infinite number of things cannot and does not exist, people say, yeah, but I thought that God was supposed to be infinite. How do you Uh, respond?
2: Well, it's very important that when we talk about the actual infinite, we're talking about a mathematical quantitative concept. I often word it by saying an actually infinite number of things, Well, in God's case, when we speak of the infinity of God, we're not talking about a quantitative or mathematical concept. God is not a collection of an actually infinite number of things or parts. Infinity, when theologians apply it to God, is a qualitative notion, not a quantitative notion. It's a way of saying that God is omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, perfectly good, eternal, necessary in his existence. Infinity is simply a way of expressing all superlative, omni-attributes of God. So it's not a quantitative mathematical concept at all.
1: Dr. Craig, how would you answer the skeptics who say, well, then, who made God? What's the best way to answer that question?
2: Well, do you remember the first premise of the Kalam cosmological argument is that whatever begins to exist has a cause. Now, it doesn't say that whatever exists has a cause. In fact, it would be difficult to think of any philosopher in the history of Western philosophy who was a, a theist who thinks that everything that exists has a cause. If something never began to exist, then there wouldn't be any need to have a cause for it because it never came into being. So what I would say is that you get back to a first uncaused cause, which transcends time and space. And it's simply a a meaningless or absurd question to ask, well, what is the cause of the first uncaused cause? That's like wondering about what is this married bachelor's wife's name? it just doesn't make sense. Once you understand the concept of a bachelor, you see that he can't have a wife. Similarly, once you understand the idea of a first uncaused cause, you see that it it cannot have a cause.
0: I'll tell you what sheds light on this as well, is when you listen to a really good stereo system, you say it's high fidelity. And what that means is it sounds just like, uh, or it gets as close as as the, the technicians can possibly get it to the actual orchestra. Therefore, if you're sitting in an in the auditorium listening to an actual orchestra, you don't say this orchestra is high fidelity. Right. You know, because that's the standard by which all the stereos try to attain. Right. And so you're not going to say what is the high fidelity of the Fidelity, (laughs) you know, in a sense. So, uh, I mean, that illustration helps me a little bit. That that and uh, uh, what is north of the North Pole.
2: Yeah, those are all the same kind of questions when you're asking what is the cause of the first uncaused cause.
1: Well, Dr. Craig, give us the second scientific.
2: The second scientific confirmation comes from the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says that given enough time, any closed system will come to a state of equilibrium or heat depth in which the energy is evenly diffused. And scientists apply this law to the universe as a whole to ask, what will the future of the universe be like? And what they've discovered is that eventually the universe will reach a state in which it is completely dark, it is utterly cold, it is lifeless, and extremely dilute, matter will be just spread very, very thinly. Now, if in a finite amount of time the universe will reach such a state, then the question arises, if the universe already has existed for infinite time, why is it not now in a cold, dark, dilute, and lifeless state? And the best answer to that question is the universe has not existed forever. It had a beginning at which it was created, and the initial energy was simply put in as an initial condition, and it is now in a state of running down toward this thermodynamic heat death that it will reach in the future.
0: You know, the Kalam cosmological argument, if you're looking at the God of Christian theism... The Kalam cosmological argument gets you in the stadium, and and Jesus gets you to home plate. I mean, (laughs) don't you you have to add a few more arguments to get to the God of Christian theism?
2: That's right. Uh, This This is an argument that has been propounded by Jews, Christians, and Muslims alike. But notice what it does do, Kevin, that is significant. If this argument is sound, it eliminates all pantheistic religions, like Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, It eliminates all polytheistic religions, like ancient religions of Greece and Rome uh, and spiritism and animism. It narrows the field down, really, to the great monotheistic religions of the world. So that it really does narrow the field tremendously, though you still then have, as you say, to go some extent further to ask, well, which of the great monotheisms is true?
1: That's fantastic. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. William Lane Craig, one of the finest apologists of our day, and we've covered a lot, but there's a whole lot more that we could cover. But for those of you that want more information, he's got a website that you can go to. So, Dr. Craig, tell us about your website.
2: The website is reasonablefaith.org, reasonablefaith.org. And you'll find there debate transcripts, article uh, downloads that are all free podcasts. You'll find a question of the week and an open forum where you can blog yourself. Just all sorts of good things are available at reasonablefaith.org.
1: Yes, this is Dr. William Lane Craig. He's an author and a philosopher and a theologian, one of the finest apologists of our day. And he'll be back with us next week as we talk more about the evidence for the existence of God.
0: Well, we have run out of time today, but there's so much more to talk about with Dr. Craig, so we'll pick it up there next time with part two of our interview on God's existence. Once again, go now to our website, evidenceandanswers.org, and browse through all the resources there, including the entire interview with William Lane Craig. This is cutting-edge material, and we would like to ask you to help us keep Evidence & Answers on the air. If you appreciate a program that intelligently presents the claims of Christ to a doubting world and addresses the hard questions, please support us financially. Just click on the Donate button when you go to evidenceandanswers.org, and any amount you can donate will be such a blessing and will keep us expanding. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And we'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuh-